0: We got some good news early this week from the CDC as they issued new guidelines for those who are fully vaccinated. The good news is that those people can now visit with other fully vaccinated people indoors without wearing masks or social distancing. For more on the new rules for those that have gotten their full vaccine shots, we'll speak to Lev Fasher, Washington correspondent at Stat News.
1: What the CDC said today is in many ways something that a lot of Americans probably had assumed already. The point of vaccines is to prevent people from getting sick and to prevent people from getting others sick. So presumably, if there's one person or even better, two people who've been fully vaccinated against COVID-19, it's hard to see a problem with them hanging out together, spending time indoors, even doing things that for the past year we've all come to learn are dangerous, because it's just highly, highly unlikely that one could get the other sick. Since they're both vaccinated, it's highly unlikely That even if they did become sick, which does happen occasionally, that there would be serious complications, that someone would be hospitalized, or that they would die, of course. So the CDC has essentially said if you're vaccinated, you can hang out indoors as long as the people you're hanging out with indoors are not particularly high risk, which is to say, elderly or have underlying health conditions that could lead to complications if they did contract COVID. So essentially, the CDC is saying as long as one out of two households that are mixing is fully vaccinated, that's okay, provided there aren't high risk people. And of course, if two households are fully vaccinated, then go for it, throw a party, have dinner, don't go too crazy. But (laughs) they're essentially saying that if everyone in a particular group is vaccinated, you can start doing some things that you know, you would consider normal, and you can start returning from the shell of, of your pandemic safe life.
0: Yeah. They also said a couple of other interesting notes. If you are asymptomatic, meaning you don't have any symptoms or you just don't feel cruddy or whatever, you don't necessarily have to quarantine or go get a test. You're going to be low risk still. So that's an interesting one. Some restrictions, though, as you said, parties and don't go too crazy. They still said to refrain from medium to large gatherings because, you know, the other people might not be vaccinated. And they said travel restrictions should still be in place. You shouldn't be traveling all over the place just yet. So on the one hand,
1: the recommendations about large groupings, I think to a lot of public health officials still make sense because let's say you get 30 people together as of right now, it's, you know, March 2021, not much of America is vaccinated. The odds are that even if half the room is vaccinated, half the room won't be. And that means that in a group of 30, there are going to be 15 people who are mingling and and spreading COVID. So they're just saying that don't get large groups together, because at this point, it's unlikely that everyone in a large group would be vaccinated. Even if they are, there are still low levels of transmission and, and illness that take place in people who have been vaccinated. So essentially, just a note of caution from the CDC. For now, though, of course, one imagines that would change as more and more people in the country do get vaccinated. The travel thing is a little more interesting. The CDC didn't really articulate what the exact risk is of people who are fully vaccinated, for example, getting on a plane.
0: It was literally one line in the guidance. It just said, at this time, we're not updating travel recommendations.
1: I think it's largely about not giving the country as a whole the impression that things are already back to normal, because of course, they aren't. That said, I think the CDC is going to be criticized here a little bit for maybe asking folks to do too much. After all, if they're saying you can go to a family friend's house and, and have a nice dinner together if, if everyone's vaccinated, or if one of the households is vaccinated, and the other is low risk, why not, if you're vaccinated, why not get on a train or an airplane and go see your grandkids in another state or, you know, go take the beach vacation that you've been waiting to take for you know several months throughout a, a pretty rough pandemic winter. So it's just a cautionary note. But yeah, they haven't really articulated exactly what the difference is risk-wise between, you know, these small gatherings of vaccinated people mm-hmm. versus vaccinated folks taking a vacation or, or traveling from state to state. Though, of course, it's not new guidance. It's not new guidance that vaccinated people shouldn't go anywhere. It's just that they haven't changed the guidance that's been in place for months and months that it's a pandemic and now's not the time to be taking vacation.
0: Now, this is all very good news. This is what we wanted. As you mentioned at the beginning, we were hoping that this would be the guidance. I hope it actually pushes a lot of people that were hesitant to get the vaccine to want to do it more because you can ease those restrictions now. But We also have to caution, this guidance is for people that are fully vaccinated, meaning you got to wait two weeks after your second shot if you have Pfizer or Moderna and two weeks after the single shot of Johnson & Johnson. But the Washington Post has a tracker that says 60 million people have at least one dose so far. I think in your article, you mentioned about 31 million Americans are fully vaccinated. So there's still a little bit of time before we can ease these restrictions.
1: I personally am on the younger side. I don't have an underlying health condition. So I'm not vaccinated. and I probably won't be for a while. But I think the guidance is that for people like me, you shouldn't assume just because a lot of elderly people, a lot of people with an underlying health condition, a lot of people in a high risk job that puts them in face to face contact with a lot of other people just because they're vaccinated doesn't mean that someone in my situation can go to a party, should be going to movies indoors, should be eating all the time in restaurants that aren't well ventilated or don't have distancing measures in place. So it's just a cautionary message to the entire country that, yes, we're doing well on the vaccine rollout. It's really accelerated in the last couple months. And a lot of high risk people are immunized at this point. But, you know, just hold off a little longer because there's a danger in assuming that the worst is over.
0: Lev Fasher, Washington correspondent at STAT. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. In Bessemer, Alabama, all eyes are on Amazon workers as they're currently voting on whether they want to unionize. The voting period ends on March 29th, but already the retail, wholesale, and department store union has said that in recent weeks, over 1,000 Amazon employees have called to inquire about organizing drives at their own facilities. For more on this union fight at Amazon, we'll speak to Jay Green, reporter at The Washington Post. What's really fascinating
2: to me is to see how the unionization effort in Alabama is being watched, not just in this country, but elsewhere, and how it's inspired some folks. And so I talked with the union that is trying to organize the workers in Alabama, the retail wholesale and department store union. And they told me that over the last three months from the beginning of the union drive, they've had a thousand or more than a thousand workers at Amazon contact them and ask, if they could get information about what it might take to start organizing drives at their facilities. And, uh, you know, it's a fascinating phenomenon because Amazon's been fighting unionization for really most of its 27 years of life. And this seems to be maybe gaining momentum at some other facilities around the U.S. and the world.
0: Let's talk about that fight that Amazon has had against unionization efforts. As you mentioned, for most of their life, they've been going through this already. It's a little different in Europe where... Unions are kind of part of the cultural fabric of workers there. But here, I mean, it's happened in Seattle. It's happened, uh, I think, in Iowa. It's happened a bunch of times. And Amazon has been successful every time in fighting against this so far.
2: The most recent fight was in Delaware in 2014. It was a really small unit. And the uh, the machinist union tried to organize and failed. But yeah, I mean, it goes back in 2000, a bunch of call center workers and an Amazon facility here in Seattle, where I live, we're trying to organize, and Amazon was effective in shutting down that effort. And it's happened over and over and over again. Amazon's been very effective at doing this, which is, I think, one of the reasons why the fight in Bessemer, where these workers seem to have at least a decent chance of success, is so compelling.
0: And you make a mention in your article about how Amazon is really becoming the face of blue-collar workers throughout this past year. Obviously, During the pandemic, everybody was staying home, ordering online even more. And, you know, Amazon was kind of booming through that. But they added like 500,000 people. And, you know, they're all getting paid like $15 an hour, which is, you know, on the federal level, we're trying to fight to get the minimum wage put up there. So they're really kind of this face right now. So the unionization efforts kind of even fit into that whole thing.
2: It's the reason why I think unions are so focused on this and really trying to help out the union succeed they see amazon as the future of sort of blue collar work in this country and if the union can crack amazon uh, in this instance they believe there's going to be more opportunities to do so as well
0: amazon obviously has been getting some criticism for their tactics and you know and trying to get workers not to vote for the union workers for themselves you know they're complaining about aggressive productivity goals Different things like that, and, and obviously concerns over COVID, and they don't want to get sick. But what are some of the tactics that Amazon is using? I've heard a bunch of stuff. You know, they're putting flyers in bathrooms. They were holding meetings with people to tell them, hey, you know, uh, you don't want to start paying union dues, even though in Alabama it's a right to work state, so you don't have to pay union dues. But w- what are the, some of these tactics that we're hearing about from Amazon?
2: Those tactics you talked about, we reported on some of those before, but those were ones that started really from. The beginning of the drive. What's been interesting to me is to see what Amazon's been doing since the voting began, because the rules are, are uh, the National Labor Relations rules are a little bit different when you're in the midst of an election. But one of the ones I think is fascinating is Amazon had requested of the NLRB that the balloting be held in person and that that there would be a, a ballot box on the Amazon property so that workers could go and vote as they came to work. And the NLRB shot that down. And they shot it down for a few reasons, not the least of which is because they wanted the balloting to be mail-in to protect not just workers, but NLRB staff as well, because they were the ones who would be counting the the votes. But what was interesting is that after the NLRB made the decision to not do what Amazon requested, to have a ballot box on property, in the parking lot, in front of the warehouse, inside a tent, Amazon, uh, or all of a sudden a mailbox showed up on the property, in front of the warehouse, inside of a tent. This mailbox is actually a U- US Postal Service box, but it isn't, doesn't really have markings on it. It's the kind of mailbox you see at apartment buildings or condominiums are called cluster boxes, which have multiple openings where you can kind of pick up your mail and deposit it. But what was interesting about it is they just did this anyway. And so the labor activists who, who you are know, supporting the union say that you know, Amazon's trying to insert itself into the mechanics of the election. And it could give the impression that Amazon has some control over the election, but also it could see who's voting for what. And so there are some concerns about that one that have been raised. And that's just one of the, a, a few tactics that folks are raising eyebrows about.
0: Lots of eyes on this. We'll have to uh, wait till the end of the month to see how it pans out. Jay Green, reporter at The Washington Post, thank you very much for joining us. Great to be on the show. Media companies and streamers are having to deal with what to do about problematic content on their platforms. As they build their libraries of older shows and movies, they're experimenting with disclaimers, warnings, or removing content outright that could be deemed racist, sexist, or homophobic. For more on how Hollywood is addressing these problems, we'll speak to Rebecca Keegan senior film editor at The Hollywood Reporter.
3: The libraries that these companies hold are the big advantages that they have over newcomers like Netflix or Apple. If you're Disney or Warner Brothers, you have 100 years of history that you can use to entice consumers, to keep your audience looking at your streaming service, but with that 100 years of history comes racism, sexism, homophobia, you know, a bunch of forms of bias that were publicly acceptable when these old movies and shows were first created. So studios are doing a bunch of different things to try and address this issue. They don't necessarily want to throw out movies or shows entirely, although that has happened in some cases They want to sometimes put disclaimers or maybe video warnings on some of the content. At both Disney and Warner Brothers, there are, excuse me, Warner Media, there are sort of advisory groups that get together. It's a combination of people who work at the studio and people from outside the studio at arts groups, advocacy groups, who look at the content and sort of make suggestions and decisions about how best to treat it. The companies are also using some interesting techniques. Artificial intelligence is one of the ways that they're examining their old content for potentially problematic or biased issues.
0: You know, you talked about how valuable that old content is for these companies. Just a quick breakdown on Disney Plus, 80% of what they have is their licensed and library shows. Only about 20% is original brand new stuff. On HBO Max, that is 90% percent to the old stuff, 10 percent on their original brand new thing. So it's a lot, potentially a lot of content, a lot of work to go back for these advisory groups to go back and decide what to do with them. So tell me a little bit about some of the problematic content we've seen or some of the content that has gotten these disclaimers. We heard about the Muppet show. We heard about Gone with the Wind was particularly uh, very intensive with what they did with it. Tell me a bit uh, about some of those examples.
3: Right. Well, with Gone with the Wind last summer during the protests that rose up after the police killing of George Floyd, a screenwriter, John Ridley, wrote a letter to the L.A. Times saying that HBO Max, which had just been launched for a few days, should temporarily at least take Gone with the Wind off its service. And Warner Media did so quite quickly. And they had Jacqueline Stewart, who is one of the hosts at Turner Classic Movies, which is also a Warner Media property, Record a, I think it's a three or four minute intro to run in front of the movie. So if you go to watch Gone with the Wind on HBO Max right now, it starts with Jacqueline Stewart's introduction. And she talks about the sort of legacy of the film. She talks about how it romanticizes slavery. She talks about the fact that Hattie McDaniel, who was the first Black actor to win an Oscar, was not allowed to attend the premiere for the film and how she was kind of mar- marginalized at the Oscar ceremony. So Stewart goes through the ways in which the movie reflected the racism of the era in which it was created and racism in Hollywood, too. There are other examples, like you brought up The Muppet Show. With The Muppet Show, Disney put disclaimers on, I think it's 19 episodes for different types of content. One is an episode where Johnny Cash is singing in front of a Confederate flag. And then there are some places where studios are pulling the content entirely. For instance, Disney has for years not shown its film Song of the South, which has not added to its streaming service and has no plans to add to its streaming service. And then there were blackface episodes of several TV shows that have been removed from circulation as well.
0: I think it's a very smart decision to go back through the library, put these warnings, context. I think context is really important when it comes to this. But what are these companies doing when they hear about backlash to this? Because we hear a lot about cancel culture, You know, a lot of these buzzwords kind of coming up right now. What's their posture when it comes to things like that?
3: Yeah, in some ways it's risky for companies to draw attention to their problematic content. In the case of Disney, when they put the warning labels on the Muppet show episodes on Disney+, Plus, it sparked a number of mocking news stories, particularly in conservative media. And those stories Oftentimes drew attention to other problems for Disney, like uh, uh, Senator Tom Cotton was interviewed about the Muppet Show issue on, I think it was Fox and Friends. And he pointed out Disney's thanking of a government in China in the credits for Mulan that happened to be a government where Uyghur Muslims were being persecuted. So in some ways, when a company sort of sticks its head up and owns the history of its content, it can then become a lightning rod for more controversy or more criticism.
0: And, you know, like as I mentioned, I think it's important when you put things in context, you put these disclaimers, at least you call out things that haven't aged well, let's say, or just outright the wrongness of what was in those things. But at least you get to preserve the original work of it and uh, people can still be exposed to it. They could make more discussion even from it. So I think it's a good step for these media companies to get involved on this part of it. And, and, you know, I know there's going to be the detractors with some of it, but I think it's still an important step. And uh, thankfully, a lot of them are taking these steps.
3: Yeah. I mean, if you figure the alternative might be for some of these shows or movies to go out of circulation entirely, I think a lot of people who are creative or work in the film and television industries would not want to see that happen. And what some sort of scholars that I spoke to feel is that to completely remove them from circulation doesn't solve the problem. You know, there there isn't suddenly no racism because you take a racist movie out of circulation. So if you are able to add context and sort of allow and help an audience to know what they're going to see, it probably makes it more likely that these movies will be able and shows will be able to stick around and in some ways, it's not so different from the fact that we have a warning when a TV show is going to have smoking or when a movie has nudity or violence. Now you may see a warning that a, an old movie has blackface in it, and people may get used to these warnings in time.
0: Rebecca Keegan, Senior Film Editor at The Hollywood Reporter, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Oscar. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.